shoulders. Trying to make me feel at home, Sir Ralph. That's right, good of you, the burly man said, grinning. The jibe finally broke the other's control. Screaming with rage, he flung the wardrobe door open to impede the burly man's approach and started dragging clothes off their hangers and hurling them like palms before the advancing feet. Chunky tweeds, elegant evening wear, wool, cotton and finest silk, all alike were crushed beneath the implacable tread till finally the two men stood inches apart. A hand like a contractor's grab fell upon the fair man's shoulder. Instantly, as if its touch were anaesthetic, all life and energy seemed to drain from his limbs, and the tense, straining body went slack. Walk is, said the burly man. At the foot of the stairs, an older, grey-haired man with a lantern jaw was waiting. Well done, lad, he said. Shall I cuff him, sir? I doubt we'll need to go as far as that. Though if he gives any more bother, you can maybe box his ears. The burly man laughed. The old jokes were best, especially when your boss made them. Outside, the sun was low in the sky, but still warm. It cast long shadows from the three police cars standing on the white gravel beneath the terrace. In the rearmost car's shady interior, the pale face of a woman could be seen, wedged between two WPCs. She looked straight ahead, showing no more animation than a death mask. The uniformed officers took charge of the fair man and led him down from the terrace into the second car. He turned before he got in and looked back. Not at the figures above him, but at the house itself, his gaze moving slowly along the whole facade. Then he let himself be pushed into the rear seat. On the terrace, the man with the jaw spoke a few words to his burly subordinate, before running lightly down the steps and getting into the leading car. He held his arm aloft through the open window like a wagon master preparing his train. Then he let it drop forward, the cars began to crunch gravel, and at the same time their bells started to sound and their lights to flash. Smiling broadly, the burly man stood on the terrace till he could no longer see the flashing lights, nor hear the sounding bells. Then he turned his back on the sun and slowly re-entered the house. Chapter 2 You can bear a little more light? I must bear it if you let it in. Lights some hot, harsh and constant, others driven at her like snow against a stovepipe, melting soon as touching. A shallow platform, one step up. She takes it, pauses, sways, hears the pause and the sway in the watcher's breath. She thinks, so it must have felt for Mick, that first step onto the scaffold. A hand steadies her, no executioner's hand but her saviour's, Jay's, cousin Jay Wags, though she cannot yet think of him as a saviour. She clutches her old leather-bound Bible to her skinny breast. He smiles at her, a warm smile in a young face, and the memories touched of faraway times, faraway places. He urges her forward. There's a chair, she sits. To her left, a pitcher of water with a glass. To her right, a small vase out of which a spray of freesia raises its hand of glory. Before her, a posy of microphones, offering some protection from the flashing bulbs and probing gazes but none from the TV cameras covering her every move, like guns on a prison watchtower. Mr. Jacqueline is speaking, her solicitor, a small grey man who looks so dry that a very little pressure might crumble him to dust. But it is a dryness which kindles to fire at the spark of injustice. He says, Let me rehearse the situation in case anyone has strayed in from another planet. My client, 
Miss Cecily Kohler was tried for the murder of her employer, Mrs. Pamela Westrop, in 1963. She was found guilty and sentenced to death. The sentence was later commuted to life imprisonment. Almost from the start, doubts were expressed in some quarters about the safeness of the verdict. But circumstances conspired to make a re-examination of the case virtually impossible until, two years ago, Miss Kohler's kinsman, Jay Wags, began to interest himself in the fate of his distant kinswoman, Sissy Kohler. The new evidence he uncovered was first presented to the public in the Ebor television program, Doubt, last spring. Now the Home Secretary has at last accepted that there are serious grounds for believing there may have been a gross miscarriage of justice, and he has issued a release order pending consideration of the new evidence by the Court of Appeal. Until the decision of that court is officially made public, I cannot, of course, comment on the legal implications of what has happened. But I can point out the obvious. My client has spent a longer period in jail than any other woman in the annals of English penology. It goes without saying that she will need a proportional period of readjustment to the rigors of freedom. But, being aware of the great public interest in the case, she has accepted the recommendation of her advisers that she should attend this press conference in the hope that thereafter she will be permitted a long breathing space free from the importunities of the media. Does that include Jay Wags and Eber Television, calls a sharp-faced young woman. Jay Wags smiles at her and says... One question per paper was the agreement. Is that your Sally? Uh, no, Miss Kohler, I'm Sally Blind Craig, Daily Sphere. How did it feel when you heard you were getting out? Sissy Kohler speaks so softly, not even the posy of mics can pick it up. Sorry, I couldn't catch that. She says she felt nothing, says Wags. Next question. Nothing, insists Blind Craig incredulously. After all those years, you're told you're innocent and you feel nothing. Cola raises her head and speaks again, this time loud enough to be heard. I knew it already. A pause, then laughter, a ripple of applause. Next, says Wags. Martin Redditch, BBC Television. Miss Cola, you didn't apply for parole until 1976, though you could have applied earlier. Why was that? She frowns and says... I wasn't ready. Ready for what? shouts someone, but Redditch is pressing on regardless of the one-question limit. But you were ready in 76, right? And it looked like you were getting out till you attacked and killed Officer Daphne Bush in Beddington Prison. At least you got tried and sentenced for killing her. Or are you claiming to be innocent of that killing, too? She takes her time. Not as if the effort of remembering is painful so much as if the machinery of memory is rusty. Finally. I killed her, she says. Redditch tries to follow up once more, but now Wags cuts him off. Okay, Martin, you got two in. We'll call it one for each channel. Next. Norman Proudfoot Church Times, Miss Caller, the TV program mentioned the Bible your mother gave you as a child. I presume it's the same Bible you're carrying now. Can you tell us what comfort you have drawn from it during your long imprisonment? She looks down at the book still clutched tight against her breast. It helped me look in at myself. 
Without it, I don't think I'd have survived. This is the longest answer she gives. The questions come thick and fast, some aggressive, some insinuating, some simply inane. All receive the same treatment. A pause followed by a short reply in a soft, monotonous voice. Soon Wag ceases to intervene and relaxes, faintly smiling as the cohorts of the press dash themselves vainly against the walls of her solitude. At last the room is silent. Wags asks, All done? Sally Blindcrick says, I know I had my question, but it was so long ago I've forgotten what it was. How about me closing the circle? In the interest of balance, well, that's certainly a novelty in the sphere, Sally. Okay, last question. Miss Kohler, Cecily, Sissy, if you were innocent, why did you confess? This time the preliminary pause goes on and on. Blind Craig says, Okay, let me rephrase the question. Not only did you confess, but your alleged confession implicated Ralph Mickledore to such an extent that, along with the other evidence against him, it sent him to the gallows. Was he innocent too? Wag says, Okay, Sally, I should have known better. That does it, folks. No, hold on. I need an answer, Jay. It was your teleprogram that suggested she was so smashed up by little Emily's drowning that she was fair game for anyone. If she's innocent, then who's guilty? And I don't just mean of the murder. Who was it who twisted her arm till she stuck it up? Now Wags is on his feet, drawing Kohler upright too. Jacqueline leans over to the mics and says, I cannot allow my client to answer that question outside of a courtroom. We must remember the law of defamation. Defamation nothing. You can't defame the dead, yells Blind Craig. And isn't the guy...